as we think about the children and their anticipation. I imagine there's one little guy who is not only anticipating Christmas, but needs healing as well. Roger Maxton shared that he and Linda's little grandson, Luca, took a tumble down the stairs uh, in the new apartment this past week and broke uh, his clavicle. And so I failed to mention Luca for the, the prayer time, and I want to ask that you add Luca to, to your list. How many of you feel like you've got all your shopping done? You don't need to step one foot in a store or go near the mall. All right, good job. Uh, for those of you that, that did step in and, and stepped up for the kids and the families who are supporting, I just have to say thank you so much. Uh, we have uh, today, we're going to deliver those gifts, and you have been a blessing, and so thank you so much for doing that. Hope you'll come back and, and go Christmas caroling with us later today, uh, or tomorrow night, you come back at 6 o'clock for our uh, Christmas Eve service, uh, but then as well, just know uh, that we're delighted anytime we get to be together as a family, and, and I hope you find this to be a, a welcoming place. Uh, this past week, I had something kind of unusual and strange happen to me. Uh, I was doing some last-minute Christmas shopping at Myers uh, because last-minute shopping, that's the way I roll. Uh, and, and I'm walking down the aisle picking up stuff, and there's this older lady uh, standing in the aisle, and she turns around and sees me, and she just kind of kept staring at me. Now, you ever have that moment where you think, do I know this person? Uh, there's something familiar about them. Uh, I couldn't quite place her. I didn't know really if I knew her or not. She didn't say anything. And so we walked by each other. And an aisle later, of course, we walked by each other again. Same thing. She just kind of looked right at me. So I smiled politely, and, and she smiled back at me. That happened a couple of other times as we went up and down the aisles at Myers. And finally, I get up to the checkout, and there's only one checkout open because there are all those automatic lanes now, right? And uh, there's only one living human being there to check us out, and she was in front of me just unloading this cart that was full of stuff, and she was struggling uh, with this uh, case of water. And so I said, well, let me help you with that. And she looked up, and, and she said, oh, I, I owe you an apology. I said, what, what do you mean? She said, I owe you an apology for, for staring at you. And, and since I've been growing the beard, you know, I get that whole Santa Claus comment uh, from people. So I'm like, no, that's, that's okay. She goes, no, 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 I, I'm really sorry that I was staring. And I said, I, I hardly noticed it in every aisle that we were going up and down. But <clears throat> she says, I feel like I need to explain to you. In fact, uh, I'm a little embarrassed. You remind me of my grown son. And he and his family moved out of the country this last year. He got a job transfer, and I don't get to see them very often, and it's Christmas, and when I saw you, I just, I just really miss him, and I'm thinking, you know, man, that would be so hard to deal with. I'm so sorry to hear that, and she said, can I ask you a question, uh, and she said, it's going to be a little bit unusual, and if you're uncomfortable with it, she said, I, I completely understand, but would you mind giving me a hug and saying the words, I love you, Mom? Everybody go, aw. You know, I, I thought, well, that, that's not weird at all. You know, come, I'm a hugger. Come here, you. And, and I thought, you know, if that was my mom and she was asking for somebody else because she missed me to do that, well, I hope they would give her a hug. And so I gave her a hug and said, I love you, mom. And, and so she turned around and the, the clerk was done bagging up all of her groceries and, and she took off with her cart. And uh, the clerk rang up my things and said, that'll be $352.52. 
And I said, what are you talking about? I only have a few items. Uh, he said, well, your mom said that you were going to pay her bill for her. Gotcha. <laughs> that did, you know, so, come, come on, you know, that didn't happen, right? And some of you, uh, some of you, you were really into it. You're ready to shed a tear and think, oh, preacher's full of the Christmas spirit. That's a, some of you, though, we're halfway through the story and you're thinking, wait a minute. He told us he doesn't like stepping a foot in the store around Christmas time, so what's he doing at Myers at the last minute? I mean, your skepticism meter was, was running pretty high. But let's be honest, there are a few of you, uh, and maybe it's when I said that she asked for a hug, you thought, that doesn't sound very realistic, that people just don't do that kind of thing. You know, I don't know about your background. I don't know what you believe, and if you normally find yourself in church, but, but maybe that's how you feel about some of the things we, we read about in the accounts of Scripture. And if you were to be honest, and this is a place where you should feel comfortable being honest, you read something in the Bible and you think, you know, does this pass the sniff test? It doesn't sound very realistic to me. It doesn't sound very, maybe, believable. Beginning with the Christmas story itself. Now, even if you're not familiar with the Bible or you don't find yourself in church that often, you've probably heard the Christmas story quite a bit. In fact, most of you have probably heard it enough times that you stopped looking at it in detail or you stop thinking critically about it. It's just sort of there. But I want you to catch, as we go through this, some of the unusual aspects of the Christmas story. I want you to turn with me in the Gospel of Luke to the second chapter and the first verse. In Luke chapter 2, if you have your scripture with you or you have a Bible app, I want you to see this. In verse 1 it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You know, you read that account, and, and I want you to recognize as well that several hundreds of years before that occurred, it was the prophet Isaiah who actually told us this was going to happen. And he used fewer words, but there's some pretty unrealistic things there as well. In Isaiah 7:14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive. And that's unusual, right? And she'll give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So this is the story of how Jesus came to be with us on this earth 2,000 years ago. And, and you wonder, with all of this unusual, with all what some would call unrealistic or hard-to-believe uh, narratives, why? And I want you to catch these things. First, Jesus entered the world as he did to show us God as he is. He entered the world exactly how he did to show us God as he truly is. You know, when you look at all the things of how he entered this world, 
you would have to think from a human standpoint, it's some pretty poor planning. Because if God was going to send Jesus on this rescue mission to reconcile you and me back to God, don't you think, in your mind, I mean, wouldn't it be done a little bit differently? And yet Jesus would say in John 14, 9, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. And what did we see in him? Well, according to the truth of John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw what? We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And with all that glory, with all that majesty, with all that grace and truth, why choose Mary and Joseph to be the parents? Mary's just a poor teenage girl. Joseph is just a poor carpenter from a no-name town. Why, why wouldn't God wait until at least they were fully married? I mean, don't you think that would provide Jesus a, a, a more stable environment? Pun intended. Uh, it, it would actually keep the gossip from spreading around town about their marriage. Why a 90-mile trip when she's nine months pregnant? I mean, that just seems like cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, which of you ladies that have given birth to a child, which of you would want to go on a road trip at nine months pregnancy? And she's not kicking it in an Escalade. She's not laying the seat back in her Honda Odyssey to be comfortable. She's on a donkey. And something that sort of bothered me for years about this whole story is the innkeeper. Why is there no guest room available for them? Of all the details, that's the one that just it breaks my heart and kind of sends me over the top. And if you've ever seen the Christmas story or you've ever seen the Christmas pageant, where they put the little kids in dad's bathroom and they reenact a bathrobe and reenact all this, the visualization that we get in our minds is they go to Bethlehem and they've been traveling all day. They get there after dark and so they go into this, you know, Motel 6 of the day. And even though it says no vacancy on the neon sign, they know, right, you always keep that one room reserved for the VIP. And so they ring the bell and the clerk comes out and says, no, I'm sorry. There's no room for you here. And so they go to the next hotel or motel and there's no room there. But, but I don't think that's how it exactly went down. Remember, and don't miss the detail, this is Joseph's hometown. I don't know if you're going to be going back to your hometown later today or tomorrow, but if I were to pick up and travel back to my hometown unannounced, I'm pretty confident. I've been gone for 30 years from Lexington, Kentucky. But I'm pretty sure I could find a place to crash relatively easy. I've got enough friends and family, old acquaintances, my old home church. Uh, I think my mother-in-law would keep me at least for two days before she kicked me out, okay? And, and you could probably find a place to stay. This is Joseph's hometown. So why is there no lodging available? I can't help but wonder if they walked up maybe to Joseph's grandma and grandpa's door and knocked. Or maybe they knocked on the door of an aunt and an uncle who opened the door and they see him standing there with this pregnant girlfriend, this pregnant-to-be spouse, engaged spouse, and they're like, you're not staying here. And why a feed trough for a crib? I mean, we've cleaned it up a little bit. and We call it a manger, but it's a feed trough, the same place where the cow or the sheep were eating just moments before 
And only one of the gospel writers includes that little tidbit in the narrative, and it's Luke. And remember, Luke, he's writing to Greeks. And the Greeks taught, under no circumstances were you to ever humble yourself. Because if you humbled yourself, it, it, it's a weakness. And as they listened or they read about this coming Messiah laying his head in a place where the cows had eaten their last meal, it would have stretched their beliefs to the breaking point. They would have said, that sounds too incredible. But this is how God came. So here's the question that I want you to consider today. If God really is God, and he could do anything upon this earth that he wants in any way that he chooses, because that by definition is God, right? The question is, why did God choose to do it this way? I mean, if God's going to send Jesus to earth again on this rescue mission for you and me, don't you think there's a number of other ways that it could have been done? I mean, if I was God, and I think it's safe to assume we're all glad that I'm not, but I would have changed a few things. I don't think I would have had Jesus born in Bethlehem. I mean, why have him born in O little town of Bethlehem? You know, it's not O city that never sleeps, Bethlehem, or, or O big apple, Bethlehem. It's not O city of lights, Bethlehem. This is O little town. It is a one-stop sign town that if you blink, you're going to miss it. I think I might have had him born in Rome, the political, the military capital of the world. I mean, just imagine if Jesus was born in a place of power and authority like that instead of Bethlehem. What opportunities would have been spread before him? What if he would have graduated, you know, from Rome high and had all the resources available of Rome? Forget about Rome. What about Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem was the spiritual capital of the world. And what if Jesus had been born in or near the temple? Then everybody would have gotten on board, right? That this has to be the Messiah. And yet Jesus spent nearly three decades trying to convince people who he was. There were times his own family didn't even believe in him. First, because of the obscurity of the story. I mean, this, this, isn't this Joseph and Mary's little boy? At one time, one of the disciples would ask, where is he from? Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What about being born in a different family? What about being born in a family with a big name and and lots of resources? I mean, somebody that's a mover and a shaker with influence. Somebody, maybe even with a big military, to back him up when he began his ministry. Why a silent night and a holy night in Bethlehem? Why not a spectacle in a much bigger city? Why did God not make a bigger deal about Jesus' entrance into the world? Because we live in a society, don't we? Where the way you make an entrance, it says something about yourself. We see it in the world of sports all the time. Remember Muhammad Ali? Every time he got in the ring, what, what were the kind of things he said? I am The greatest. And and it seemed like every fighter after him, when they step into a ring, they want you to know they're they're the toughest guy there. Think about people like Serena Williams. When she steps onto the tennis court, she comes out all fired up. 
Take any football team, even if they're bad. You know, when they come out at the start of the game, they've got the fog machines going, and they're cheering, they're excited running out onto the field. Now we're watching in the season of basketball, you know, even the starting five, they play the music. Are you all ready for this? And they come out, and they're high-fiving and doing their little jukes and stuff. The way you make an entrance says something. And you or I, we may never walk into a boxing ring or on a football field or a court, but we're going to walk into a job interview, aren't we? We're going to walk into a first date or maybe a room full of people that you've never met before. And we all know first impressions are important. But what I want you to see is why God chose to make his entrance into this world the way he did. Why did he go about it this way? Did he not know how to make an entrance? I don't think that's the case. Because if, if anything, he really knew how to make an exit, right? If you go to the book of Acts in the first chapter, you see his exit from the world. Jesus has walked out of the tomb. He's gathered around himself his disciples and numerous eyewitnesses. And he says to them there in Acts 1, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And it says, after he said this, he was taken up from their sight before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Literally, he just floats right up into the clouds. And Scripture says there were two men there, dressed in white, standing beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus that has been taken from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. That is impressive. And it shows us that God knows how to make an exit, so you can bet he knows what he's doing to make an entrance. And it takes us back to the question. If God has all the power to do something, why doesn't he? Maybe you've asked that question of God in your own life recently. Maybe you've asked him that this past week. Maybe at some point in 2018, there were some things you went through that were really, really hard. And maybe there were some moments you said, you know, God, if you had the power to do something about this, and I believe that you do, God, if you have the power to change things, the power to intervene and to keep something from happening that actually happened, God, why didn't you? God, you could have fixed my marriage. You could have healed my child. You could have saved my job. God, you could have removed my anxiety or made the cancer disappear. If you could have kept this person from exiting my life, if you could have protected my family, God, why didn't you? That's the tension that if we're really honest, we are. And the issue is sometimes we want a God that is powerful enough to intervene in our lives when we want him to, but not so powerful that he intervenes in our life when he wants to. We want to say in the direction that our lives are going. So I want you to hear this today. Friends, God does not force control upon you. He will not force his way into your circumstances or into your life. And he will not abandon you either. 
That's what the prophet Isaiah was saying when he told us his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, when you're going through those painful moments and when you're asking God the why didn't you show up kind of questions, when you're ready to tap out, you understand he's with you. He's with you. He makes the difference. He makes the future. And the clue to unlocking the reason he came the way he came 2,000 years ago, why he made his entrance in this very quiet and understated arrival in Bethlehem rather than this grand entrance that got everybody's attention, I think it's found throughout Scripture. But I like what it says again in Hebrews. And, And we've had this verse the last two Sundays, and this is why. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, look what this says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, God showed himself for who he really is for the times especially that we need him the most. And now is that time. You see, through Jesus' birth, we see the absolute power of God. And according to Hebrews, that gifts us with confidence to come before the throne of grace. Confidence to find mercy and grace. And I love this passage. Because it tells me that that we have a heavenly father that came down to our level. He got into the muck and the dirt and the mud and the pain of our life to understand fully what we go through. He's been through all the emotions that you've been through. He's been through all the heartache that you felt. He's faced the ups and the downs and he gets it. And because of that, we have the confidence to actually approach him boldly, knowing we're going to find what we need. And what do we need? It's not condemnation. It's not a, I told you so, or if you'd have just read my word, you would have got this right. It says we find exactly what we need, which is grace and truth. You know, I I don't think I ever fully understood, and, and perhaps I'm still learning, the depth of that passage until I had children. I have been blessed with two beautiful young ladies in my life. And when they were little girls, like every child, there were times during storms or things outside their window, you know, they got scared in the middle of the night. And how do you think I would have felt if if they, they bounced out of bed, came down the hallway, and they stopped at my door and they were afraid to come in because they didn't want to wake me up. And nobody wakes up dad, you know. Rather, I want to see them come into my room and say, Father, Father, we are, because for some reason they always talk with a British accent when they're scared. Father, um, we hate to awaken you from your slumber. You know, what am I going to say? You're, You're kidding me, right? You don't need to say that. I can understand just from your tone, just the fact that you're here. Come on up. Climb into the bed. And I'd wrap my arms around them. See, this passage says, that you and I have a heavenly Father who cares enough to come to our world and experience everything we would experience. And because of that, 
We, don't, we can approach him as often as we like, boldly knowing he will, that we will receive mercy and grace. And we can do what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7. We can cast all our anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, the reason why he came is super clear. He came to tell you and to show you how loved you really are. The reason he came was because you and I, we are broken because of our sin and our pride. And he came to put us back together. He came to reconcile our rebellious hearts back to the Father. That's why he came. And sometimes we overlook the, the way in which he came. He wants to step into our world, into our lives in a subtle way, almost through an invitation rather than by overwhelming force. Yeah, God could have had him born in Rome. He could have made a big fanfare out of everything and you would have been overwhelmed, but you wouldn't know what to do with him. But when he comes on a silent night and a holy night in Bethlehem, as he still comes to us today, he comes in the small moments, in the whisper of our lives, because then we can relate. When I was a kid, my dad took me to what was then Riverfront Stadium to watch the Cincinnati Reds play. He worked for Marathon, and we got free tickets all the time. And, and back then, it was, it was Johnny Bench. It was, it was one of my childhood idols, so to speak, uh, behind the plate. Pete Rose was on first base. Joe Morgan was on second. Uh, Tony Perez was on third. Dave Concepcion was playing shortstop. You had the big red machine chugging along strong. Cesar Geronimo, George Foster, Ken Griffey in the outfield. And even though Marathon gave us these tickets up in the top of the stadium, I always took my baseball glove because I knew I was going to get a home run, you know. I knew I was going to get a foul ball. Even though up in those sections, they don't give you peanuts, popcorn, and Cracker Jacks. They hand out bottles of oxygen because it's up so high, you know. But before one of the games, we had a chance to go into the locker room, the players' locker room. And suddenly, you know, you walk into this room, and, and there he was. Johnny Bench was there, and they'd given us these little uh, baseball stamp with Marathon logo on one side and the Reds logo on the other. And, and, and I just kind of stumbled up, and Dad's like, go ahead, you know. And he said, you want me to sign that for you, son? Yeah. So I handed him, he signed it, and he gave it back to me. And I was, I was just in awe. You know, my jaw dropped. And, and, and after he said a few things, you know, the cat had my tongue. I didn't say a word. Uh, he gave me the ball back. He shook my hand. I walked away. It was all over in a matter of seconds. And I said, Dad, Dad, I just got to see Johnny Bench. Yeah, yeah, son, I know that. Dad, I didn't say anything. He said, yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> you know? I, I, I wanted to ask him about that St. Louis Cardinals game. I, I wanted to ask him what I could do to be a better baseball player. I wanted to ask him all these things, but, but I was just paralyzed. I couldn't say anything. You know what, maybe sometime in your life you've had something like that. Maybe it was somebody that you always wanted to meet. Maybe, maybe it was a professional athlete. Maybe it was an author. Uh, somebody you looked up to in your life. And you think, one day if I ever get to meet that person, here's what I'm going to ask them. But then you meet them and you're speechless. You can't say anything because you're just kind of overwhelmed in, in the moment. Now imagine if a human being can have that effect upon you just because they're good at throwing a ball 
or just because they're good at something. Imagine what it would be like to step into the unfiltered presence of God. What would that be like? That's one of the reasons I love that song, Imagine, you know. I'm just going to fall on my knees. I I know that's going to be my only response. We have a clue of what it might be like in Exodus chapter 33. Because there was a man so bold as to ask God, God, I want to see your face. Show me your face. His name was Moses. And God said to him in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. I mean, that's just baller right there. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? You know, I'd love to meet you. Well, you couldn't meet me. I'd have to kill you. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm that impressive, that awesome. But what God does as he takes Moses and he hides him like that old song in the cleft of the rock and he puts his hand over it. And then as he goes by, he removes his hand. So literally all Moses sees is, is God walking away. And I think God is saying, Moses, if I were to step into your life with all my splendor, with all my majesty, with all my glory and power, I would overwhelm you. Now you're beginning to see, I think, why God chose to send his son into this world in the meek and humble way in which he did. God did not come to simply overwhelm us. And I find that growing up, many of us, you know, we don't even have that grand, glorious image of God. And I would say most of us don't because of our own sin and pride. You see, what sin and pride do in our lives is, is they make God smaller and they make us bigger than we really are. And a person on their own agenda and their own personhood, they don't care what God thinks. They don't care what the Bible says, what God says. They they look at God's word and say, well, that's just antiquated. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter today. Uh, Think about all the hoops that we go through to dismiss God and, and make him seem smaller while we elevate our knowledge. We elevate our logic and our feelings and our heart to the point that we can't hear the invitation of Isaiah 1.18 when God says, come now and let us reason together. Let's settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they'll be like wool. And sometimes it's the people we grow up with. Sometimes it's the church that we grow up as a part of. People let us down. Churches let us down. People claim to know God who don't act very godly or or people who claim to follow Christ but are are not very Christ-like in their action. People that are saved by grace but they're not very gracious. And, And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And maybe that's why some of you believe you've tapped yourself out. But maybe that's why you still believe in God and and even rarely find yourself in church except maybe at at Easter and and maybe Christmas. And I want you to know if that's you, I get that. I I genuinely do. But I want to just ask you, what is your picture of God like? When you visualize God in your heart of hearts, what do you see? And the next question is, is that picture of God something you would put your trust in? Would you put your trust in a God who comes on strong and gives no choice, who controls everything? Would you trust a God who stays in heaven and shouts commands at you of what you should do without ever getting his hands dirty in your life? 
Would you trust a God who's waiting to condemn you for not doing the right things or believing the right things? Would you trust a God that, that doesn't understand you and cannot relate to you? A God who would say, you know, that, that's really tough what you're going through, but you're on earth and I'm in heaven uh, and I just can't relate. Or would you, as Isaiah puts it, would you trust in a God who comes to be with you? One who, who sets aside his crown, who takes off his glorious robes and enters into human flesh. A God whose earthly family was as messed up as any earthly family could be. Would you trust in a God who knows what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend? Would you trust in a God who knows what it's like to suffer for doing the right thing? Who knows what it's like to suffer because of something somebody else did wrong? You see, he knew what it was like to be hungry, poor, misunderstood, misrepresented, exhausted, and lonely. Even when sitting in a room full of people, God says, that's how I'm going to send Jesus. Because I don't want it to be lost on you that I experience everything you're going to experience. God is one who can say, I can get it. I know your pain. I know your struggle. I've been through it before. And if you follow me, I'll show you the way through. You see, that's a God I can trust and not just believe in. See, if God were coming in all his glory, we would be overwhelmed. But he didn't. He entered this world in a way in which you and I could relate to him. And we could respond to the question as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. You see, if your picture in your mind of God is any smaller than that, if your picture of God is less than unconditional love reaching out to you from a manger and then from a cross and then from an empty tomb, then it's not an accurate picture. You know, it's always said the value of something is, is only worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. Think about what God's statement is through Jesus at Christmas. A couple of years ago, a man's wife was cleaning out uh, their closets, and she found a picture gallery, Brank, from, from quite a few years ago, and as you could tell by looking at all the scuffs and bumps in, in this picture. And she thought it was junk. She was ready to pitch it out. And, and the husband was like, no, 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 that's, that's from my childhood. You know, that, that's priceless. That's my treasure. Like everything a guy owns, right, is priceless in his treasure. Guys, we don't want our wives to throw anything away, right? And he said, don't throw it away. It has sentimental value. It might be worth something. And, and so just to please him, she took it to a local antique dealer. And the antique dealer said, yeah, it's worth a little something. I'll give you $200 for it. And the wife being wise, thought, you know, if he's willing to pay me $200, he must know something about it. It must be really worth something. And she took it to an auction house or to another dealer in Pennsylvania. And she sold this, this worthless piece of junk, this picture gallery bank that one dealer was willing to give her 200 bucks for, for $20,000. And she went home with the check in hand. And the first thing her husband said was, told you so. <laughs> That's right, it was worth something. 
The value of something is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay. David read it earlier, John 3.16. In fact, would you read this out loud with me, please, in John 3.16? Let's do this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You see, without knowing you intimately, every single one of you, I can confidently say three things about everyone in this room this morning. Everyone here, regardless of your age, you want your life to count for something. It doesn't matter if, if you're hurting right now. It doesn't matter if you're at the end of your rope. You really want your life to count. The second thing I know about you is uh, we all want to give love and receive love, no matter who we are. And the third thing is we're all holding on to hope because there's a thousand different things in this life and in this world that are threatening our hope right now. But friends, don't miss it. Jesus came in a way that we could receive relate and respond to. Receive, relate, and respond. Let me close with this. There was a survey that was done uh, among Americans quite a few years ago, and it basically asked people to list the things that they want to hear. And as Americans, these are the top three things that everyone wants to hear on a regular basis from the people in their lives. Number one, the first one is, and you probably know it, what is it? I love you. The second one's pretty close to that. I forgive you. And the third thing most Americans want to hear is dinner is ready. <laughs> now, I, I laughed when I read that, but then I thought to myself, you know what? That makes a ton of sense. Because if the people are around me, if, if they can say that to me every day, I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready, I'm a happy man, okay? That's a good day for me. We make the message of the Bible so complicated sometimes. And I know, out of 66 books in the Bible, there are some parts that are hard to understand. Let me simplify it for you so that you know what the Bible's trying to communicate. God loves you. God can forgive you. And dinner's ready. Friends, he has been preparing a banquet table in glory for each one of us. There's a name card there with your name written on it. Now, I wish I could stand and explain to you why God chose to do everything he did the way he chose to do it. I can't because I'm not God. But I do know that God sometimes chooses to make himself small enough so that he can get into our lives and do some enormous things. Some big, big things. So are you willing to put your trust in a God like that? I'm not just saying believe. Even the demons believe and tremble, the Bible says. You can go back as long as there's been statistics, and most Americans, they believe in God. Doesn't make a difference. It's the one who chooses to trust in what they believe. Are you willing to trust that everything God said is true? that all the promises God made throughout Scripture are amen in Jesus Christ. And if you are, friends, you can receive it, you can relate to it, but you need to respond to it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning.
And maybe for some of you it's time. It's time to accept the love that God has for you, that He sent His one and only Son, that if you believe, if you accept it, Friends, we have behind us a baptistry that's filled each week. And there's someone here that needs to have their sins washed away. There's someone that needs to enter that watery grave behind me so when they come up, they're a new life in Christ. Maybe you're that person. As we sing this last song, if that's the decision you want to make, I'm going to have you come. Maybe you're looking for a church home or maybe you just need someone to pray over you. Friends, whatever need you have, I hope you respond to the fact that God loves you, God forgives you, dinner's ready.